Let's begin together in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. On December 30th, 2013, 43-year-old Roy Murphy stood before Circuit Court Judge Patrick Robb in a courtroom in St. Joseph, Missouri, and pleaded guilty to second-degree attempted robbery of a convenience store. He said he knew that he could face a maximum prison term of seven years. But he not only confessed to the attempted crime, he told the judge he did it because he wanted to return to prison. I went there to rob the store clerk, but she wouldn't open the drawer. I said, could you open the register, please? The St. Joseph News Press reported that he had a camouflage ski mask with him, but was not wearing it. He told the clerk he'd be glad to put it on if that would help. Then Mr. Murphy said, please call the police, and walked out. St. Joseph Police Department officers picked him up a couple of blocks away. He did not threaten the clerk, nor did he make off with any money. So he was sentenced to the lesser penalty of four years in prison as a career criminal. This isn't unlike many Christians who have been liberated from sin's imprisoning grip and returned back to it because it's what they know best and are most comfortable with. In Romans 6.18, Paul says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Those are Paul's words. But then in chapter 7, verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So which is it? Am I freed from sin, no longer in bondage to it, now imprisoned to righteousness? Or am I, as Paul says in Romans 7, in bondage to sin? And the answer is yes. But Paul doesn't leave us there. Many times people will do a study on Romans 7 so as to salve the conscience in that there's much sin going on in someone's life. And so they say, well, you know, even Paul struggled with sin. So just hang in there and one day you'll die and it'll all be better. But Paul doesn't finish there. He doesn't finish this topic there. As you know, in the very next chapter, in the very first verse, he says, there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have every reason, if we are in Christ Jesus, to enjoy the non-condemnation in which we live, the granting of forgiveness and the granting of righteousness. But this is for those who love righteousness. So what has happened here between chapter 6, verse 18, and chapter 7, verse 14? Paul's by no means retracting what he had said or contradicting himself. The point is, you are no longer imprisoned to sin unless you choose to be. 
you are ultimately, eternally not imprisoned to sin if you've been freed from it by Christ's death. But that doesn't prevent you from walking back to the prison and saying, lock me up, I'm more comfortable in sin. Ultimately, you will not want to do that, and you will find yourself miserable, as most prisoners do who've been freed from prison and for whatever reason return. I've never heard a story of someone saying, you know what, I just have been more happy in prison. But the reality is that in the spiritual realm, it is not a happy place for anyone, believer or unbeliever, to be imprisoned to sin. But for the believer, it's an internal conflict, a compulsion to do one thing and to do another. So Paul acknowledges that even he himself, as a 20-year veteran Christian here in chapter 7, still struggles the struggle with sin. He's not saying that the struggle is over, that it's no longer an issue, it's no longer a problem. So you can take heart in that, and that is some of the, the help that Paul intends to grant in Romans 7. He's not just saying that this is a problem, this is an issue. He is attempting to provide encouragement for the person who has struggled with sin. But ultimately, as I said, he's not leaving it there. He's not saying that this is a problem that you'll have for the rest of your life, and we just hope that you can bear up under it. Fast forward to Romans 7.24, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am. So he's by no means communicating some sort of Wesleyan perfectionism where he no longer struggles with sin. If there's anyone who would have achieved perfection in this lifetime, it certainly would have been Paul the Apostle. But he doesn't say that. He refers to himself as a wretched man. You know that in his letter to Timothy, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. So Paul has a humble view of himself, but this is not false humility. This isn't just a willingness to draw attention to himself. And you know that this is many times manipulatively effective toward people who want to think highly of you or whoever else. When you say something like, oh, I'm just a big nothing, that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul means every word of this when he says, wretched man that I am. Paul, as you know here, is pointing to the yet indwelling flesh. Yes, he has a new, new nature but he has what I've often referred to as a spiritual appendicitis. It continues to attack until he goes to heaven. Same for you and for me. In Romans 7.24, he says, after saying, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? See, Paul's pointing to the reality that in this lifetime, in the human body, there will always be a struggle with sin. And so he's asking the question, not primarily for his own sake, but for the sake of the listener. Who's going to set me free from this dilemma? Now, every one of us in this room, at the very best, would have to say we struggle with this dilemma existing in the body of this death. And we might daily ask, who's going to set me free? And, of course, that question sets up the opportunity to point one's full attention to the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul then goes on to say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, now when you see a so then, or a so that, hopefully up to this point you've been listening closely or reading carefully and you've embraced the theology. This is what Paul does a number of times. He gives you the theology upon which to rest and then he says what to do with it. 
And that's exactly what he's doing at this point, knowing that Christ's death will ultimately free every believer for whom he died unto complete freedom from sin entirely. What do we do in the meantime, though? And that's what Paul's addressing here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, he's the one who sets us free from the body of this death in heaven, right? But so then, what do I do between now and then? On the one hand, I with my mind am serving the law of God. Yet on the other, with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. There's your problem. There's my problem. But there's also your and my solution. So then, on the one hand, I with my mind serving the law of of God. The charismatic movement would have us check our minds at the door, meditate on nothing, and just trust that the Lord's going to do a work that he's not going to do. That's not how it works. Repeatedly, you see Paul, Peter, John, Jesus engaging the Christian mind. Set your mind on things above. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not your emotions. And so here in the same way Paul calls us to deal with our minds. On the one hand, I uh, myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with the flesh, the law of sin. What is the, uh, by the way, what is the law of sin? Where is, what library is that book in? He's talking about a concept. When you talk about the law of God, yes, you're talking about the whole of the scripture, but what is the law of sin? It's the matter of sin. It's the essence or the issue or the reality of sin. And he says, with the flesh, that unredeemed humanity, that spiritual appendicitis, I serve sin, that book, that law, that concept, with the flesh. So I've got a dilemma. And then immediately, as you know, and I told you this earlier, in the very next verse, in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there's no longer any condemnation, because that's the real problem. The wrath of God poured out upon those who are yet stuck in the sinful condition. But at least for the person who's stuck in this dilemma, and he is stuck, you and I are stuck in this dilemma, at least for us, we can say, ultimately, we'll be freed from it. Ultimately, we will no longer suffer the hideousness of sin. And there's so many directions that we could go with how hideous it is. Christians can have a tendency to flounder, though, between legalism and antinomianism. Legalism being the debilitating and ineffective self-righteousness of what emphasizes a spiritual ability that man does not have. That's what legalism is and does. It emphasizes a spiritual ability that man never had and doesn't have. And believe it or not, well, you probably do believe it because we've been through Galatians together, you know that Christians can do this. Christians do do this. Christians often hold unbelievers and other believers to a standard that God doesn't hold them to. God held Christ to that standard. God's expectation is that those who are in Christ will want to be conformed to his image, resting in him and what he has done. Legalism says you've got to perform and you've got to meet my standards. I have these extra Mishnah-like or Talmud-like expectations of you. Those are Jewish documents with expectations that those who are of the Lord or in the Lord would do more than what's actually required to actually be in the Lord and go to heaven. 
Many times, Christians find themselves thinking rather highly of themselves for what they've done and therefore have this expectation of others that they would do the same thing. And it's rooted in a man-centered theology that says that I chose Christ. I had the ability to choose Christ. And so he looks at unbelievers and he says, you know, you just need to choose Christ. Apart from the fact that Jesus himself said, you didn't choose me. So Jesus words. Antinomianism wrongly interprets the words of Paul, the apostle, that we are not under the law but under grace to mean that we are not responsible to obey God's commands until we feel like it. So antinomianism is, in a sense, the exact opposite of legalism. Legalism expects things of self and of others that are impossible. Antinomianism just does away with it entirely from the Greek term namos, which means law. So anti-namos, anti-law, antinomianism does away with any responsibility to obey the Lord. Well, I'm under grace. I don't have to obey the law anymore. You are not and never were responsible to obey the ceremonial law of the Old Testament but you are responsible for obeying the moral code, the moral law which runs throughout the word of God that has never, ever changed. Although God doesn't change, by his dispensation, he gave specific requirements to the nation Israel that he didn't give to you and me. What about the fourth commandment? Some people say, you know, Christianity is just boiled down to the Ten Commandments. That's what I believe, the Ten Commandments. Really? You ever do any work on Sunday? Oh, no, no, no. The real Sabbath is Saturday. Did it change? There are those in many Reformed Baptist churches who believe that the new Sabbath is Sunday. We don't teach that. We don't believe that. We believe that the Sabbath and to keep it holy was a command for Old Testament Israel. We don't gather to rest. We gather to worship. We gather to celebrate. We gather to celebrate the resurrection, not to be mindful of the Sabbath. Ultimately, the Sabbath rest, which the fourth commandment pointed to, is heaven. We will one day rest fully in the Sabbath that the Lord has provided for us for all eternity. But the fourth commandment telling the listener, the reader, to keep the Sabbath day holy does not apply to us. What we are called to do is worship the resurrected Christ, to worship the Savior but many people will take all of the laws of God and do away with them entirely, and others will take laws of God that were never intended. This is what Seventh-day Adventism does, laws that were never intended for the New Testament Christian, and apply them to them, and not just the Fourth Commandment, but many, many, many others. And by doing that, they engage in legalism. And as I said earlier, there are believers who are legalists, and there are unbelievers who are legalists, and frankly, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. Are we dependent upon the gospel? Are we dependent only upon what Christ accomplished? Do we rest in that? See, legalism requires an impossible man-generated performance that ultimately results in Phariseeism and a very effective practice of fooling oneself into thinking that he is fooling others into thinking that he is godly. That's what legalism does. It creates hypocrites who are prideful and yet empty, therefore very unhappy, doing everything they can to force others into their unhappy facade. That's what legalism does. Antinomianism has a camp that would have you believe that you do nothing in your sanctification. 
Keswick theology teaches this and is the origin of the phrase, let go and let God. So what does man do? And what does God do? Paul says it simply in Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's at work? Is it God or is it you? And again, the answer is yes. Each has a different role and each has a different product. You do not create your sanctification. You do not change you, but you must work while God performs the work of change in you. You're to work out your salvation. And you know this, contrary to what Roman Catholicism teaches, this is not work salvation. Who's Paul speaking to here? Very specifically, he's speaking to people who have how often obeyed? In his words, always. He's speaking to faithful, mature believers, and he says to them, work out your salvation. Now, let this be an encouragement to you as well. As you think of your own struggle in sanctification, be mindful that mature believers struggle in sanctification, but they struggle. It's a fight. It's a battle. It is not an absence of work. It is not a let go, let God non-activity. You are involved. The mature believer is involved. And you think, man, I know some mature believers, and it just seems easy for them. When will I get to the place where it's easy for me? Heaven. But in the meantime, surround yourself with those people who are truly mature and make it look easy. They're not really finding it to be easy. They're finding it to be restful. They're finding it to be joyous. They practice the things that God calls us to practice, and the result is that they rest in that joy. Verse 13 again, Philippians 2, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Peter says on this note in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, Seeing that his divine nature has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see that? That's sanctification defined theologically. Becoming partakers of the divine nature, that you're looking less like you and more divine more like God, specifically more like Christ. So that's how Peter sets up the command then to tell the believers that he's writing to what to do. He says then, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. See, that's freedom from sin. That's having been liberated from this sinful captivity. Now, for this very reason, also applying all Diligence. That's verse 5. Now go back up to verse 4 if you're following along. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You see what's happening? 
freed from that sinful, lustful passion. And then what? Verse 5, now, for this very reason, now that God has supplied this, God has granted you life that you couldn't choose because you were dead. Now that God has done that, verse 5, now for this very reason also applying all diligence. You see, the person who thinks that he applied enough diligence to bring himself to Christ is not likely to apply a whole lot of diligence in resting in Christ. He's more likely to think very highly of himself because he initiated the relationship and probably will expect God to just do the rest. But on the other hand, the person who is awakened by God's kindness, who is brought to life from death and realizes that that was all of God, it is only an act of grace, will want to be diligent. He will want to respond with grace and humility and gratitude to a God who would spare him from the eternal torment that he deserves. And Peter goes on to say then, for this very reason, applying all diligence, and then these things, there's a list. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Be morally excellent. Be above the old lustful person you used to be. Commit yourself to being morally excellent. Why? because Christ has granted you this divine nature of which you are to be a partaker. You are a partaker, but will you be diligent about it? He goes on then to speak of knowledge. He says, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Be diligent in these things. The faithful, godly, mature, being sanctified Christian is the one who responds to God's grace with diligence. He wants to honor God with his life knowing that he has but a short window of time and he doesn't have a clue how long it is. It might be a few decades. It might be five minutes. But his passion is the glory of God and to return thanks to a God because he recognizes that God is doing a work in him that he could not have chosen to be done. Hebrews 12, verse 14, pursue peace. This is the pastor in Hebrews. We've looked at Pastor Paul. We've looked at Pastor Peter. Now we're looking at the pastor in the book of Hebrews who says, pursue peace with all men. But he also says this, pursue sanctification. Pursue it, grasp it, reach for it, work for it. Pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, think of those innumerable times where you've heard someone talk about a person that they know, it's usually a child, who prayed some prayer when they were five. And here, 15, 20 years later, well, they're not walking with the Lord, but I know they're a Christian because of the prayer they prayed. Let's read Hebrews 12, 14 again, shall we? Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The pursuit of sanctification is a reflection of the reality that God has caused someone to be born again. Romans 8, 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're putting to death the deeds of the body. If you're living according to the flesh, you can and should expect eternal torment. That's what is being explained here. But if you live, if you have eternal life, 
that eternal life will be reflected in the reality that you yourself are working to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Paul says it this way in Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Cut off the opportunities. Do away with them. Eliminate them. Now, let's talk about how it works. How does sanctification work? What's the, the theological practice, if I can say it that way? Now, let me start by saying this. Neither Paul, nor Peter, nor John, nor Jesus give us a full understanding of this. We looked at it a little bit in that passage in Philippians 2, that God is doing a work and you are doing a work. God is doing the sanctifying while you are being faithful and obedient. But here I think we might see the best picture, although it's limited, into how God actually performs the work of sanctification in us. And this won't surprise you. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is the Spirit of God doing a work in the person who observes the person of Christ. The person who pursues the person of Christ is certainly and progressively likened to the image of the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, that is the impetus of Paul's heart as he speaks of what it means to be sanctified. He calls you, he calls me to, to, to genuinely pursue the Christ of the Bible, not simply someone called Christ, certainly not the Mormon Christ or the Jehovah's Witness Christ or another false Christ, but one who is truly God in eternity past who became flesh, who caused himself to become a defenseless baby, to obey his father, himself to walk by the Spirit, and because of his full obedience to the law became a substitutionary atonement for all those who would repent and believe in the gospel. And then being raised from the dead, proving and granting power over sin and death so that everyone who would trust in those realities and those basic theological truths would know Christ and behold him forever and ever and would rest in the joy of being in his presence. And that will be our sustenance. We see a sliver of that in the person of Mary in Luke chapter 10, who beheld the person of Christ while her sister washed dishes and became angry with her because she wouldn't do the same, even angry with Christ because he wouldn't admonish her for simply sitting at his feet. This is what you and I are called to do and be, to worship the person of Jesus Christ, that his lyrics go up on the screen at the end of our service. You and I are finding ourselves enraptured with who he is, and I don't mean mesmerized to the point that we don't think. I mean that because we are thinking, we are thinking biblically and we are thinking with a right and a firm and a sound and a biblical Christology that he is exalted and the result is we become less interested in self, more willing to receive correction by whatever venue and by whatever manner because we understand that we are not yet perfected and we are called and given the privilege to be likened to his image. That's how it works. But one more passage from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, therefore, we do not lose heart, 
but though our outer man is decaying. Any witnesses to that? All of you. When you were born, you began to deteriorate. Our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For every person who's ever lived on the planet, there's this deterioration process that swings from the beginning to the end of life. But for the believer, there's this reciprocal reality that he's being rebuilt from the inside out. He's being changed. He's being renewed. He's finding less and less interest in sin, and in fact, a greater and greater hatred for sin because God has given him new life. God has granted him righteousness. Because of that, not because he himself chose it. He couldn't choose it. The best he could choose would be a false impression, a shadow of righteousness that's not righteousness. God and God alone can grant this, and he does. And when he does, he provides this encouragement. Again, back to Paul's words, we do not lose heart. We don't become discouraged if what? Though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The person who scoffs at these truths and mocks is not being renewed day by day. The person who does everything he possibly can to undo the reality of God's sovereign grace is not being renewed. He's renewing himself unto a greater pride and a greater deception of self. He thinks that he somehow has achieved God's pleasure in his own doing. And he will become increasingly deceived in that effort unless someone by grace steps in and tells him the truth. Verse 17, Paul looks to the future. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. They're here for a little while. All pain, all suffering, it's temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. So we rest in what we can't see. We know that it's true because the Spirit of God has made testimony in our hearts that He is real, and He not only is real, He indwells us. So we trust in Him. Again, these truths are too much for the unbeliever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And the natural man that you and I should be most concerned with are the ones that you know who go to church and think because they think they brought themselves to Christ, that they somehow have gained favor with God. And friends, it is incumbent upon you and me to live a gracious, humble, loving, quiet life so as to have credibility to one day be able to answer the questions of the person who's finally willing to say, I'm empty. My life is a shell. It's nothing but a facade. It's nothing but a mirage. I love this about Paul, that he so frequently takes us back and forth between the bad realities of eternal condemnation resulting from our own willful intent to be sinners, and then to the glorious reality of Christ's greatness and his sovereign grace poured out in full and freely and completely upon all of those who will repent and believe in the gospel. Paul does this frequently. In Romans 5, 
I ask you to turn there, Romans 5.12. Paul says here, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Paul then says in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So no one could sin in the exact likeness of the sin of Adam because Adam's and Eve's sins were the first sins. Adam ultimately being the federal head of all mankind is the person through whom sin entered into the world. No one can sin again in that way. But when we sin, we sin with equal depravity. We sin with equal culpability. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. When Adam sinned, you and I became guilty. Paul does not give full explanation to this, but we know it to be true because he says it. We know that we sinned in Adam. It was as if you and I committed the original sin. Without an understanding of this fundamental biblical truth, sanctification is impossible. In fact, to reject the concept of total depravity is to be convinced that you do not need sanctification. Why would you if you weren't totally depraved? This frequently occurs in pseudo-Christian homes, where behavior modification rules the parenting principles. To exalt behavioral compliance over heart transformation is to produce little Pharisees who will one day reveal a clear disinterest in the Jesus of the Bible. And yes, they maintain very likely some devotion to some religion, but not the Jesus of the Bible, not the God of sovereign grace. Prior to the time of Moses, there was no written law. Paul's point is that although there was a time during which there was no written law, Adam to Moses, death still reigned. Romans 2, verse 14, we read, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You see, man knows inherently, internally. He knows the difference between wrong and right. And this has always been the case, even from that period of time where there was no written law, the time before Moses. The fact that Moses gave Mankind, specifically Israel, the law was not the point at which man became accountable. And the same for those who don't have God's written law today. They still have an awareness of wrong and right because God has established it in their consciences. You know from Romans 1, 19 and 20 that God has written his existence on man's heart and he is therefore without excuse. But when the law came in, much resulted from that. You know this from Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And so when they did eat, according to Genesis 3, 6, and 7, they died. You say, I thought they kept talking and walking and doing things that people do. Yes, that's true. There was the beginning of physical death. They died 
in a sense, physically, in that death began in that moment and ultimately would be completed when they took their last breath. But the real issue is, is that they died spiritually. They were separated from God, no longer any kind of heart for God at all. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, this is where we are likened to the person of Adam in that in his original sin, we are equally culpable. We are born into this, this condition for which we are responsible. Paul says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58 verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb, not from the ninth grade, from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. An interesting word picture, a snake, a viper that has no interest in being persuaded and will only shoot venom into anyone and everyone he has opportunity with. That's the condition into which you and I were born. That is an absolute and complete disinterest in Christ and a total inability to choose him. That's the condition into which you and I were born, and yet the Scripture declares, Romans 5.12, we sinned in him. This is not how to win friends and influence people, but it is what God's word says. Let me tell you the problem right here for a moment, because this is a big and almost kind of heavy theological data. The problem at this point with many people, problem is they come to the Bible with a deductive process rather than an inductive process. They choose bad hermeneutics. I am the standard of truth. I know how things work. I'm a logical person. Therefore, I will assess what the Bible means and what it says. And when I think there's a contradiction, I'm going to create a confluence of the two issues. And so what that person does then is he dilutes the reality of both doctrines. Instead of believing that both are true when they seem not to be compatible. And the trouble is that he sets himself above God. He refuses to believe that God somehow could be more intelligent than he is. He refuses to believe that God would not have such great respect for him that he would fully disclose all the details and all the nuances of everything he has ever done to him because he's so special. That is a very high view of self and a very low view of God and a very low view of his word, of course. Romans 5.15 goes on to say, back to our passage, but the free gift is not like the transgression. You see, it's a free gift, and it's not like the transgression. You see, Paul dealing here with what theologians refer to as the first Adam and the second Adam. The free gift is not like the transgression. The free gift of the second Adam is not like the transgression of the first Adam. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. We don't know how many, but we know that the free gift is not like the transgression. For by the transgression of the one, many died, and by the grace of the one, the gift of eternal life was given to many. It was given in that moment. It was granted as a gift when he died. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose 
from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Condemnation, self-willed punishment, resting in one's own ability and being culpable for it and therefore deserving condemnation. Verse 16 of Romans 5 goes on to say, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. With the phrase from many transgressions, Paul shows that it was not just one transgression, that of Adam, that made the free gift necessary, but the many transgressions, your transgressions, my transgressions, all the transgressions of those for whom Christ would die, all of those transgressions made justification necessary to be established by someone else who is just. He is not only just, he is the one who justifies the unjust, and he did so in his death. Justification before God was supplied by God for the many transgressions of the many transgressors. Verse 17, Romans 5. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Spiritual victory. Spiritual victory. No longer passionately committed to holding on to embitteredness and slander and gossip and secret talk and all those things that resonate for the unbeliever. But he decides, this is not good. I don't like being that way. He has spiritual victory. He will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Why? Go back to the middle of verse 17. For those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It is a gift. It is not earned. It is not chosen. It is a free gift of grace. And the person who rests in his belief that he somehow merited this righteousness, he will not be sanctified. He can't. It's impossible. He thinks he achieved God's pleasure, and therefore he thinks he's still achieving God's pleasure, so he doesn't realize where he needs growth. And chances are pretty good he's never been born again. But this spiritual victory means that sin does not reign in him. It doesn't reign. Now, you and I, every one of us in this room can say we've struggled with sin. We've hated the reality that we've returned to sins that we thought we'd never return to. Sin does not reign for the person who rests in the grace of Christ's free gift. But as long as he maintains some credit, he doesn't realize that the problem is him. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. See, it's one thing when an unbeliever refuses to acknowledge this about himself. It's quite another when a person who has been saved by grace says, No, that wasn't me. He refuses to believe that he ever fit into the category of total depravity. He somehow escaped that biblical reality for everyone who has ever been born. Continuing in verse 18, 
even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. As you know, he's not talking about all men who have ever lived, but in the context of the passage, he's talking about all of those for whom he granted that righteousness. Every single one of them, every single one of the elect were granted righteousness, and it will be made obvious in their lives in due time. Verse 19, Romans 5, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. That is a passive reality. He does not say they will make themselves righteous. They will be made righteous. It's a work of God. Sanctification is a work of God. See, the fact that many were made righteous and not simply given an opportunity for righteousness is an expression of God's sovereign, irresistible grace. Now, Paul explains that the law exposes transgression. Prior to the dissemination of the law of Moses, transgression was great. But with law, it is now that much more obvious. When God gave the law through Moses, now man is that much more accountable. And friends, this is why false converts pretend to read the Bible when they don't. They want you to think they're Bible readers so that you'll think they're converts, but they're not really interested in true, genuine, honest, hard Bible study. Liberal theology is rooted in a willingness to approach the Bible as an academic document, but it's not Bible study. It's an effort to stand in judgment over the Word of God and point out all the problems. And that's what man-centered theology usually does. It intends to simply point out all the would-be or pseudo-problems. See, Paul explains that the law exposes transgression. Prior to the dissemination of the law of Moses, there was much transgression. But when the law came, now it's much more obvious. But in addition to that, man in his rebellious state rebels all the more. What? You're going to give me a written document now? Fine. I'll rebel all the more. I'll not only reject what I already knew, I'm going to reject everything that's in it. This is what the unbeliever does. Paul says the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is a beautiful statement that is so often twisted into something that's not beautiful. Where sin abounds, where transgression abounds, where there is much sin, where there is much ill will toward God and rebellion against him, for the believer, there is much grace. This is what we call a theological premise that Paul knows is going to create problematic questions in the minds of many. So he cuts them off at the pass and asks the question himself. But let's finish this section here. He says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, you see that? That's total depravity. Sin reigned in the dead state that Adam and Eve ushered themselves into and for which you and I are culpable. Sin reigned. It was ruler. It was in charge. You didn't step outside of that sin and take the king off the throne. You couldn't because sin reigned. It ruled in death. Even so, grace then, this is the new man, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see the progression? 
Sin no longer reigns. Now grace reigns, and grace not only reigns ultimately into eternity, but in the lifetime right now. That grace is revealing a hunger for righteousness, a willingness to be likened to the person of Christ, a love for him that shows gratitude that grace has been granted and refuses to take credit for it. And then in Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? This is how you and I ought to be thinking about this as we read this. There will be those, and there certainly have been those, and this is the more antinomian camp that says, the more I sin, the more grace I get. I like grace. Why wouldn't I just continue in my sin? David pleads with God to protect him from presumptuous sins. The phrase, it's a whole lot easier to seek forgiveness than permission. That's really rooted in this idea, a willingness to go ahead and do what one knows is wrong while believing that because of grace he won't be held accountable for it. I believe that in Romans 3, Paul makes it crystal clear that that person is not redeemed. He says about them that they are yet condemned, people who operate that way. And what does he say in Romans 8.1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if there is condemnation for some, they're not in Christ Jesus. They're not Christians. The person who has no problem with living a privately sinful life loves his privacy so much that he is unwilling to be addressed or corrected or rebuked, much less encouraged with truth. He wants nothing to do with righteousness. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Paul uses that phrase 10 times in the book of Romans. It's a very strong, adamant, deliberate, strategic response to a manipulative question that he knows people will ask. Why wouldn't I? You see this common with man-centered theology. Well, if this is true, then why wouldn't we just do this? If God is sovereign, well, why wouldn't we just go ahead and do all, whatever we want? Why would we even evangelize if God is sovereign? You see that manipulation coming out of a lack of Bible study, a feigned interest in the things of God, pretense, and it works for a while. And eventually those who are truly reading the Bible, studying the Bible, subjecting themselves to truth, would have a heart of compassion on that person and tell them, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. A useless spiritual life eventually unravels. The person who lives a life of pretense and refuses to subject himself to these truths ultimately will be exposed. The question is, how will he respond? Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Now, friends, let's just talk about you and me. Let's Let's not set our sights on those outside these walls thinking, man, I am so glad that we've got our theology straight. Wouldn't it be great, you know, if the rest of Redlands would just come join us? In order for us to genuinely be evangelistically helpful to anyone else, it is absolutely of the greatest priority that you and I would understand how sanctification works and that you couldn't say, well, it's better to seek forgiveness than to seek permission. To live one's life that way is indicative of a presumption and a manipulation that is not resting in the grace of Christ. 
Do you not know, verse 3? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Why does he ask this question? Because the person who doesn't mind asking the manipulative questions should be asked the right questions. Don't you know? If you're identified into Christ, you're associated with Christ, you claim the name of Christ, don't you know? This is a really good question for many people in our culture, maybe for you and me. Again, we should think about ourselves. Don't you know? that if we are identified with Jesus Christ, baptized into him, we've been baptized into his death. You see here, Paul eliminates the hope of the antinomian who wishes to do away with our requirement to obey the law of God. John says it this way in 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. He doesn't play a game. He doesn't put up a front. Chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And in case you're wondering, back in chapter 1, verse 10, John says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is by no means saying that sin absolutely and completely stops. That would defy everything every other book of the Bible, especially the book of Romans says. But the point is that we don't lie about our sin. We aren't dishonest. We don't put up a facade. We don't pretend that we don't sin. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin. And then this, verse 4, Romans 6, Therefore, based on all that we've looked at, specifically having died with Christ. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you love that phrase? Newness of life. There was not this easy slide from being an unbeliever into being a believer that you surveyed all the issues and decided, you know what, I think I like Jesus. I think I'll choose him. I think I'll go that path. There was no simple progressive 
slide into Christianity. You were dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom. You were dead and you were made alive. You were a slave to sin. No longer. You've been made a slave to righteousness. And that was a drastic reality. It wasn't something that you could perceive. It wasn't something that you could understand. God only gave you the ability to comprehend that in the moment that he caused it to happen. And so what do we say then? Let's finish with this. What do we say then to the person who says, well, if that's how it works, then what do I do? We tell them, trust in this great God who is a God of sovereign grace. Trust him. You say, but I'm, I thought you were saying I couldn't do that. I never said that. What we are saying is that God is gracious to everyone who trusts in him. Paul the apostle in the book of Romans pleads with God for the salvation of all the Jewish brethren. He declares that for everyone who will believe in him, they will not be disappointed. Now see, the unbeliever can't comprehend this. He says that's contradictory. He can't get his arms around it. And 1 Corinthians 2 is very clear as to why. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So this morning's not primarily for the unbeliever. It's for the believer who would say, I will live a life of grace. I will no longer take credit for what I couldn't do. He will humble himself. He will embrace these truths. And he will say, I will walk in newness of life. Well, as I said, in a couple of weeks, we'll finish this message and I'll give you some very practical tools to apply in your life that will help you grow in sanctification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great confidence we have in your word to perform its work. Lord, make us a people of grace, not a people of legalism, much less antinomianism. May we be committed to your word. May we trust in the words of our Savior. When he prayed to you, Father, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. And I thank you for the great privilege that it is to be involved in a local church where a large percentage of the people are devoted to you, devoted to one another, devoted to discipleship, devoted to spiritual gifts, devoted to serving. And Father, I pray for those who have had such difficult circumstances in their lives that this has been elusive, that you would grant us the privilege and the wisdom and the humility to serve them well, that they too would enjoy the great effectiveness of communicating the grace of Christ with one's life. Lord, I trust that you will never allow us to place expectations upon anyone that would reflect a legalism but that we would only trust in the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, whose death, in fact, fully atoned for the elect, that we would find great hope in what he accomplished. We would rest in that. We wouldn't speculate as to what he did or didn't do, but we would know and believe and trust in what he did do, and that we would, with great grace and love and compassion and humility, communicate that message with our lives and with our words. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.